morning we concentrate on Romans chapter 9 and we'll be looking at specifically verses 18 to 24 uh, but with so much in this particular context I've broken this sermon up into two parts so there is uh, a focus that we'll have this morning on Romans chapter 9 verses 18 to about 22 with a little bit mentioned for the verses in its context Uh, But overall, we'll spend the next couple of weeks looking at the entire picture of Romans chapter 9, verses 18 to 24. And the sermon is entitled God's Divine Election. God's Divine Election. For this sermon is about divine election, but it's about how God has elected Israel, uh, the remnant of Israel, and not only how he came to that, but also man's place as man tries to uh, understand God's redemptive workings. The last time we were together, we studied God's uh, prerogative, his will, his desire to grant mercy and compassion to whomever he chooses and then to harden whomever he hardens. And as we looked at that last time, we established that God does what he does according to the counsel of his own will. So God is is not on man's temporal schedule. He is on his divine schedule. And so when he initiates an action, when he executes the plan of his will, He does so according to the counsel of his will, but according to uh, his works. We also uh, we also looked at how he brought in Paul brings in the Old Testament prophets. He brings in the Old Testament prophets to make the case that God certainly cast aside those who do not belong in the will of his salvation plan. But he also gathers to himself those who do belong. And he does so. He does so according to. To the counsel of his will, but for the Jews, what we'll learn is he does so based on the idea of the remnant. And you have heard that phrase come up, even as we studied Daniel in our Bible study, even as we have looked in previous times, as we've looked at Acts and other areas of the Bible in our time, and even in Matthew, in the Gospel according to Matthew, we've looked at, in in a broad sense, the theme of God dealing with His remnant, Israel, how He's going to deal with and elect people whom he will select according to his mercy and his compassion. But that also means that in him being specific in who he elects and selects, he'll also cast aside those who do not belong in his plan. And so that is, as Paul will say later in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 10 and Romans 11, as he's driving toward that point, that is a cause for great fear and reverence among the Gentiles. And so this time we look at how God responds to man in this area of delivering his people, Israel, toward salvation in him. I'm going to repeat that. This time we'll look at how God responds to man in in this area of delivering his people, Israel, toward salvation in him. How is God responding to man? Because man certainly approaches God with questions about how he will deal with Israel. Uh, Israel, by trying to establish their own righteousness, by trying to arrive at the law of righteousness by their own sense of self-righteousness, they missed out on it. But it also implies that they had questions about their righteousness. And they those questions that they asked were not always born of a desire to truly know God and to serve him. Paul here in this particular context, specifically Romans chapter nine, verses 18 all the way down to uh, 28. 
and all the way down to 29. Paul is dealing with the Israels where they are in this context. He's dealing with the broad scope of Israel as a nation, and then he's dealing with the spiritual Israel as a remnant. But when we look at this, it's largely everything that he says, continuing on from this passage, is tied directly to Romans chapter 2. It's tied to Romans chapter 2 overall, because if you remember in that context, after Paul deals with the decay, uh, both the moral and sinful and, and, and also the spiritual decay of the Gentiles in that known world, and we can also apply that to the world before us, he then begins to deal with Jews who would otherwise think that their place of righteousness is solidified, that they have a foundation of righteousness and their comparison Uh, The foundation upon which they believe they stand is because they're not as bad as the Gentiles. They believe they're not as wicked as the Gentiles. And so they begin to mock the Gentiles and begin to say that they are more righteous because they don't sin like the Gentiles sin. And Paul, in fact, deals with them in that context where they are. And he comes back to them in the very same way as we look at Romans 2. But I'll, I'll say this, that it's not as we're looking at this passage, it's not that... Uh, Paul vindicates or lets Gentile believers off the hook, so to speak. He's not doing that when we look at Romans 9. He's not doing that when we look at these particular chapters uh, that uh, correspond after this one. But what he does show is that God is not on trial for his actions to fallen man. That's what he does show. He shows that God is not on trial. That man certainly has questions about how God initiates salvation, how he authors salvation, and how he brings it to pass, and for whom he brings it to pass. But in any of these questions, and in all of these questions, some of them in a theological and academic context that men raise them, and sometimes men are just raising questions, men and women are raising questions about God's workings, but it should drive us to the scripture, because that's where we're told how God works according to his plan. But God is not on trial. And the reason God is not on trial, as Paul is about to establish for us and has already established, it's because man is alienated from God. God did not alienate himself from man in the sense that he simply wants to be uh, transcendent from him only and not eminent with him uh, upon the earth. But it was man in his fallenness and his sin that alienated man from God. So God did not initially alienate himself from man. And you can uh, understand that within the context of the events of the Garden, uh, the Garden of Eden. So by the time we get to verse 18 and 19, I'll read them. Paul takes on a question. He takes on a question that would stem from the kind of thinking to put God on trial. In verse 19, Paul takes on a question that would stem from the kind of thinking to put God on trial and ultimately to accuse God of playing games with the deliverance of Israel. If you look at verse 18, because I believe it ties directly together with 19, he says, so then he has mercy. He's to, and, and this is Paul speaking about God. He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And then you have this objection to that statement that Paul makes. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resist his will? As I've said, this is a question that would stem from the kind of thinking 
to put God on trial and accuse God of playing games with the, the deliverance of Israel. Because essentially the question goes like this, and maybe you've heard this kind of questioning, uh, whether you have found it in theological writings, whether you found it in the annals of social media, or someone preaching or teaching a point, or giving a lecture about a point, uh, or simply Christians having a conversation, professing Christians having a conversation. But essentially it's this kind of questioning. If God could choose... Listen to this. If God could choose whom he will for salvation and grant compassion and mercy to whomever he chooses, why not choose to grant compassion to all Israelites? That's the kind of questioning that Paul is taking on. Let me repeat that. If God could choose whom he will for salvation and grant compassion and mercy to whomever he chooses, why not choose to grant compassion to all Israelites? Why not eliminate the hardening process altogether and just skip over the disobedience of Israel and grant the kingdom to Israel at wholesale? Paul is dealing with that kind of questioning because there are those who are attacking this idea that God is only going to save the remnant. And that is a modern attack that's also launched where somehow they believe God to be better fit, God to be truly God if he would just save everyone. Especially among the house of Israel. Why not do this? Why not do this is essentially the question. Because if you look at verse 19, that's what he says. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Essentially, who among Israel, if God can be compassionate and merciful based on his own desire, why would he find fault in anybody? For who resists his will? Because again, well, if God is God... And he wants to be a God of mercy and compassion. And he can overcome the will of the unbeliever who truly can resist his will. And why not let those individuals go free and enter into his kingdom? Why not do this? Well, I'll tell you, this is the same line of questioning that man makes today in matters of his own soul. He thinks this argument is airtight. He thinks this is a a philosophical problem for God to deal with. Some even believe that on this basis, God will save them even in their unrighteousness because they appeal to how they would do things. They say, well, God is essentially going to mark on some curve because either we're all so unrighteous or we're all a little bit righteous that God will grade us on a curve, so to speak, that God will let the multitude of us or all of us into his kingdom because after all he will overcome all of our wills anyway but quite honestly let's be even more frank and specific quite honestly as we look at this passage this is how historical israel thought and this is how they thought about themselves in their own self-righteousness that they believed they could do whatever they wanted they could do whatever they please According to Romans 6, because Romans 6 teaches that they were making a mockery of grace itself and they were accusing Paul of doing the same. While they were making the mockery of grace, they were saying that Paul himself was teaching a sense in which we can sin so that grace may abound, so that grace may increase. We just keep sinning. God keeps meeting us with grace because, after all, he can overcome our will. We can't resist his. This is a false argument. 
and Paul brings it up again because this is how Israel thought about themselves. They thought about themselves and their own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all in their own self-righteousness, their false righteousness. They believed it were impossible for God to render an eternally guilty verdict toward them related to the bar of his righteousness because they believe that they met the bar. But the problem with ancient Israel in this context, the problem with future multitude Israel who will not be among the remnant and the problem with the so-called professing Christian today who is not distinctly Christian, but simply religious. The problem is that they create a bar of their own righteousness and they continually meet that bar. But that bar is not God's righteousness because God is very clear about the bar of his righteousness, the standard of his righteousness. And so in no way is the modern church been thinking differently about himself as he masked his wickedness in religious garb like the ancient Jews. The ancient Jews were guilty of this. They were guilty of saying, listen, God is not going to cast aside Israel and they would appeal to things like the Mosaic Covenant. They would appeal to being sons of Abraham. All the distinctions that we've come to up to this point, they would appeal to as a means to righteousness. But the problem is they've already failed. They've already failed. And they failed because, as we have just read at the end of this particular chapter, they failed because they tried to attain to that bar of righteousness, to that law based on a standard of their perceived self-righteousness. And they did so on the basis that they could work their way into God's kingdom and that God would commend their works. Those works were not born of faith. Those works were not born of a new nature. Those works were not born of the worship of the Messiah. Those works were born of a standard that they erected to believe themselves to be righteous, believe themselves to be righteous. But God has an answer for all this. And you would think that this philosophical line of questioning, because that's what I call it. It really is man being philosophical. It really is man approaching God and saying, God, I found a I found a loophole. I found an error in your bar of perfect righteousness that somehow uh, somehow all of us can get in. And the fact that God answers the way he does should stop any line of questioning in that way. And I believe that Paul is indeed speaking for God as an apostle uh, to the Gentiles on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19 should be airtight in the philosophical, somewhat pseudo theological mind. Uh, But look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? God truly wanted to save everybody who can resist. Look at verse 20's answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man who answers back to God? That's Paul's answer from God. Who are you, O man who answers back to God? He goes to the substance and foundation of who man is before God. Not simply who man is, but who man is before God. Before God, man is alienated. He's fallen. He is unrighteous. He's wicked. He has no eternal resources with which to pay God back. He is condemned. He's guilty. So because of this guilty verdict, 
Man cannot stand before God and rightly alter any terms of the redemptive plan because man has no righteousness of his own. But even furthermore, he gets specific. Oh, oh man, who uh, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? It is similar to his answer to Job, to God's answer to Job in chapter 38 of Job verse 4. And I don't believe that that's by accident. I believe Paul is very much acquainted with the prophets and he's very much acquainted with how salvation has worked by God's hand and deliverance by God's hand through the prophets all the way up to the present age in which he's writing and even to the future age. Because the apostles were very much acquainted with the end times as well. But I believe that that's where Paul is going. In fact, if we study scripture, if we read this text, I believe that with trying to piece together God's answers to man when man questions him, it's no accident that in our minds it's the first place we go. We don't need a cross-reference reference in our Bible to say, I think I remember him telling Job the same thing or a similar thing. Uh, that when Job came to question him. And I'll tell you where there are some differences, but there are some uh, some certain similarities. Job chapter 38, verse 4, I'll look at a little bit of it with you, and then we'll also look at Job 40, just just to give us uh, some context around the point that we're making. But if you look at Job chapter 38, verse 4, when Job says... Finally, after all the events have taken place, all the suffering that he's endured, unbeknownst to him that it is uh, it is uh, God who wants to put him to the test and Satan who wants to take opportunity to accuse Job and to make the case that Job is simply obeying God because he has a hedge of both prosperity and faithfulness from God around him. And so God proposes, well, then try it. You can't kill him, essentially. You can try him, you can test him, you can come after everything around him, but you can't kill him. And then let's see if he serves me. And in all this, Job is one who is righteous. He is blameless before God. But uh, you see what he says in verse 4. Where were you after Job wants to question God about all the inner workings of the things that have taken place in his life? God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then it goes on from there. In every way that the Israelites of old and multitude Israel who may not have been found in faith and even man today wants to question God's redemptive plan, God will always answer in this way. He'll always answer in the way that says, You are fallen. You are fallen and you cannot in and of yourself bring yourself to perfect righteousness. So therefore, you cannot raise any questions about how and why I do what I do and alter the how and why. To ask how and why and study and to try to figure out, God, how are you working in this way? And then consult what God has said in testimony of scripture is the heart of the Christian. But to accuse God of maybe he could have done something differently. Maybe he should have done something differently. 
That is the kind of thing that God will stop anyone in their tracks and say, did you create yourself and did you create the world? Because in the passage in Romans, he objects to the Israelites by saying, did you create yourself? Did you create your nation? Did you deliver your nation? Did you establish righteousness in your nation? No, you did not. So therefore, you cannot raise the question. It's not exactly the same in the case of Job, because, again, Job was found blameless in the eyes of God. And we'll talk about this even in the next few points. But the answer from God stands to put man back in his place as one who cannot achieve the righteousness that God requires on man's own accord. He wants to place man back in his place. You are the recipient of grace. You are not the author of your salvation. And he says it first to Israel, and then he says it among the Gentiles, because that's where this passage is going when Paul brings in Hosea. So it's not exactly the same, because even as Job stands before God and he begins to question some things uh, related to how God does them, and God gives him a ready answer, a very consistent answer. One thing God is with a capital C is consistent. He's consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. So he's very consistent in how he deals with man. But what you see that lets you know that Job is different from the Israelites and Romans is we see a different response from Job in the face of the same question. That when Job asked God, essentially to summarize it, why am I suffering as I have? Why this? Why that? Why has this happened to me? Well, I'll tell you that because Job is blameless in the eyes of God, has the faith that God requires that God gave to him to walk with God. Look at Job chapter 40, verse one. It says, and the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder. Listen to this. Will the fault finder contend with the almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. So God already categorizes man as the fault finder. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? And the answer is no, there is no contention. Let him reproves God answer. And so Job steps back and look at Job's answer. This certainly was not Israel's answer. Look at Job's answer in verse three. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. That's Job's answer. He doesn't get into a theological seminar. He doesn't get into, well, God, hold on. I have a few more questions for you because your plan isn't working according to my plan. No. What he says is, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I will shut up. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice and I will add nothing more. In other words, your plans, your answer, your ways are good enough for me. I'm glad I asked the question. Now I will shut up. I will not further question you any longer because you've gone back to creation. I didn't create myself. I didn't establish my own salvation. I was not there to give you counsel when you created the world. Therefore, I can contribute nothing in the way of altering your divine plan of salvation. I must accept what is. Do you recognize how strong the true church would be if men thought the way Job thought? 
that I will not question. I won't erect systems, seminars, conference circuits, books, commentaries, personality cults. I won't I won't erect any of these things to question God because I believe my way to be better. You know what I'll do? I'll place my hand over my mouth and I will accept what he does because he's God. He's God. He does as he pleases according to the counsel of his own will. So then I must be pleased with him and his counsel. And I'm not saying that there won't be times in your personal life where you go through things and you say, God, why? There's nothing wrong, essentially, with saying why. But when God gives you the answer, particularly in the age in which we live, it's going to come in Scripture. Even as you pray, you'll be able to interpret his providence, the answer to prayer in Scripture. And I would say as you pray in that area, pray for God to reveal to you that he's answered the prayer. Don't only pray. Pray, Lord, show me how you've answered. Show me when you're answered. And if God says, Place your hand over your mouth according to his word. You don't have a clear answer, a clear way to move forward according to his word. He's not speaking audibly, but according to his word, you must accept. If he does answer you and it's not the answer you like, you must accept. You must accept the workings of God. Even in praying for people's salvation, you must accept that not everyone is going to be saved. I've had people throughout the course and duration of my own life began to comment about the impact of ministry and the great impact of it is all these people are now on fire, that there's no apathy, that people now just want to run through the doors and embrace Jesus. That's not what the New Testament paints a picture of Christian ministry. In fact, it is salvation among the few. It is that salvation is something that is mocked in the last days. So effectiveness in this area is not because throws of people have thrown themselves onto it. I would say that it's the other way, that God's dealings are such that he's going to save a few in every generation. And those few will praise and honor his name. And we are about the business of strengthening them so that from one generation to the next, the truth moves forward. But I dare not consult And deal with God in a way to say, God, I'm going to do it a little differently because your way doesn't work. So let me close my Bible and introduce all these methods to bring about your salvation plan. No, instead, I open the Bible wide and through the word of God preached, through the proclamation of the word, he gathers the people to himself. In every arena that we pray, even for the salvation of Israel. We can't say we want the salvation of Israel and stand with a national Israel that has nothing to do with a spiritual Israel. That's not how God works. We can't say we stand with an Israel that doesn't stand with the Messiah. That's not how God works. And then we can't say, well, God, you know what? We would do it that way. So let's create a system that does it that way. No, we must say, God. What are you doing in among your people? And then look at the scripture where he tells us this is this is what he's doing among his people. And then that's enough for us. My point is, we must have the faith that Job had in the face of receiving the answer that he received. But you do see a distinction. This answer is not so from the Israelites. The Israelites don't answer this way. It's not so among those who find fault with God's dealings with Israel and the Gentiles, because that's when people erect all these systems 
to try to establish some allegorical approach to Israel or somehow replacing Israel altogether with the New Testament church. They're fault finders. They're fault finders. They're finding fault with God's dealings with Israel and the Gentiles. But listen, Paul puts a stop to it even more in verse 20, but also in verse 21. In verse 21, he says, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Man is not more enlightened as he presses God for an answer in these areas, especially after God has answered. And now we have the word of God. So one must find his answers in the word because that's where he answers the questions that we have concerning his redemptive plan. But listen, the problem is why God answers as he does and why Paul brings it up is because when man begins to press God in these ways and will not consult God for an answer. According to how God has revealed his answer for the Old Testament Jew, it was within the scope of the covenants. It was the prophets. So people could not say, well, how, God, are you saving the Jews in that Old Testament ancient Near East context and then kill the prophets? You can't say, how, how God, are you dealing with salvation among the New Testament church and then not listen to the word being either preached or taught accurately or study the word for yourself? You can't do that because that's how God has revealed his word. He's revealed it through the written word and then the proclaimed word. You should hear and agree with if it coincides with the written word. But Paul puts a stop instead. Why God deals with uh, with accusing man this way is because man is starting from the standpoint, as we look at verse 20 and 21, where Paul provides an example. Man is beginning from the standpoint of accusing God. He's, st he's starting from the standpoint of accusing God. And therefore, he's falling further into condemnation for raising these questions against God in the face of clear answers. That's the key. There are clear answers. We're not Job. So we're not in a place where we can go to God audibly, physically, and ask him questions and then receive answers audibly from him. What we can do is pray. And when God responds, he responds through his word. He responds through his word. He doesn't respond through impressions. He doesn't respond through some audible prophetic voice. He responds through his word. He doesn't even respond in such a way where men would view their preaching as prophecy. Because men ought to be preaching the text. The text that we're studying and seeking wisdom to apply. And so when we get answers, we're getting the answers from the study of God's word and the proclamation of it must simply line up to that. But my point is, when man is in the face of clear answers, well, what's God's plight for Israel? And then they simply just raise up mockeries against what the Bible clearly says in Romans against that, against how God has actually saved Israel, both in the scope of time throughout uh, the chronology of Israel and up until the future in the end times. When man mocks that, he's simply falling into further condemnation for raising these continual questions against God. It looks just like how the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes kept asking Jesus questions 
even after he answered them and their goal was to indict Jesus. It's the same practice. It's to come before God and to say, well, God, you should save everybody. Well, what you're ignoring is that you are unrighteous. And because you're unrighteous, you are alienated from him. He can do as he pleases. If he wants to save everybody, he would. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to because man does not deserve that from him. Man deserves wrath. And so his desire is what is most important, not my desire. Paul doesn't provide essentially a a contrary answer that man can give to the endless questionings of why toward God. He doesn't provide a contrary answer that man can give to the endless questionings of why toward God. He doesn't raise up all these points that man somehow has some case, that man has a case against God. We must never become uh, empathetic to man challenging God in any way because man doesn't have a case against God. Man has no case before God except he's guilty of everything that God says he's guilty of. Instead, what Paul is dealing with is he's dealing with exactly what Job had to deal with in the face of God's clear answers. First, Paul is dealing with the fact that there are clear answers because he would not tell people not to answer back to God if there were no clear answers to what God has already established. He would say, you know what? Keep asking questions. Paul doesn't need Q&As. What Paul needs is for Christians to understand what he needed was for, for Christians, especially in this age, to understand the written, revealed word of God in light of what they were facing, especially with respect to Israel. And furthermore, we mentioned it before, but you have the New Testament church standing in a place where the unbelieving Gentile world was assaulting them and Jews who said that they belonged to the God of the fathers assaulting them. They said they belonged, so they had enemies on both sides. And Paul is saying, well, the world's going to do what they do. But I need to give you a more specific explanation about who the true Israel is so that you do not feel as though this Israel uh, that is uh, assaulting you and persecuting you is the true Israel, that God intends to save them all. I also believe it's why Paul contributes what he does to the writing in Hebrews, that he's beginning to say If you're not careful and you view this Israel, multitude Israel, unelect Israel who is assaulting the church, if you deal with them in a way that they are the true spiritual Israel, you will fall into apostasy. You will fall into apostasy. You'll begin to believe them about who they say they are versus who God says they are and how God will consistently deal with salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ. So these things are all connected, especially in the New Testament. But Paul doesn't he doesn't commend this endless questionings of why toward God. He doesn't not in this passage and he doesn't do it anywhere. Instead, he says that man should stop speaking. He says man should stop speaking. He says man should close his mouth. He says it should be so as he contrasts God's perfect righteousness with man's false sense of his own righteousness. That's the contrast. The contrast isn't, well, I have questions about what God did based on some experience in my life. I have questions based on some denominational preference. I have questions based on the 10 different sermons I listened to as I rode in here this morning. 
No. The standard is God's perfect righteousness versus false righteousness. That's the comparison. And the standard is true righteousness against false righteousness. The comparison is true versus the false. But I'll tell you that we keep bringing this up and looking at it because it is from that standpoint, man's false sense of his own righteousness, that man raises the question to begin with. It's from that standpoint. He raises the question about how God ought to do what he does a little differently. Because even to say, well, who can resist his will? To say it that way is to say, well, I mean, God should save everybody because we can't overcome God's will. We're just robots. So when people make those kind of argumentations, no matter what historical, uh, denominational, theological construct they place around these kind of statements, they're not good questions to ask because they accuse God. To question God in this way fails to assume that man is fallen and utterly sinful and hopeless apart from God. You want to start somewhere? Start there. If you want to ask questions of a text of God, start there. You start there and you say, look, I'm fallen. I'm sinful apart from Christ. I have no righteousness of my own. I'm hopeless apart from him. Now, God, teach me your truth. And in Job's case, for Job was a righteous man in the eyes of God, it was not okay to question God after salvation in this way after Job receives the answer he receives. When he receives the answer he receives, he says, that answer is perfect. It comes from the perfect one. In fact, I have nothing else that I can say to challenge that. I'm in full agreement with what God does. I don't need to know all the intricacies. I need to know what he's revealed. And what he's revealed is I have no stake, no stock in changing how he has done things and what he's done in my life to bring me to himself. I don't want to change anything there. It's good enough for me. But it was not okay to question God after salvation in this way, as some do, believing Believing, because listen, listen to this. This is what's happening in the contemporary age. People are believing they are contributing to some man-made theological canon, some measure of standard that belongs to them, filled with the benefits of pop culture theology and pop culture riches untold. They believe that when they challenge God this way, they raise up all kinds of ways to use media, all kinds of ways to gather each other around to do this. What they are doing is they are still as sophisticated and lucrative as it may be. They are still absolutely wrong for challenging God in the face of his clear answers. So when his answers are clear, we can't say, well, they're not clear. So let's develop a system that says they're not clear. Let's develop virtues around being unclear. No, let's gain clarity and let's stop our mouths until we are clear so that when we're clear, we can proclaim that which is clearly revealed. And then we find ourselves in agreement with God. The more God has worked in his own to become righteous. Listen to this. The more God has worked in his own people to become righteous, the less, the less they challenge him on the workings of his redemptive plans and simply exercise faith in what he has revealed to bring it to pass. I'm going to repeat that. The more God has worked in his own people 
in our own hearts to become righteous. And I'm talking about the righteousness he gives, he credits to those who are in Christ. The less we challenge him, the less you'll challenge him on the workings of his redemptive plan and simply exercise faith in what he has revealed to bring it to pass. Now, listen, that doesn't mean we don't study it. That doesn't mean we don't preach it. That doesn't mean we don't teach it. And that doesn't mean we don't evangelize others about it. What it means is we don't turn around and look at God and say, could we have done this differently? Is, you know, something outside of scripture, maybe extra biblical. Maybe we could have done it this way. Maybe we should have done it this way. No, we look at his revealed word. We have faith in it. And that's what proceeds from our mouth, because that is what is in our hearts toward him. That is the loyalty and fidelity and faithfulness he calls us to. It's not to challenge him on the workings of his redemptive plan. His plans are already established. We read that the last time we were together. His workings are already established. Yes, it is for us to learn how he's going to deal with Israel from the standpoint of his revealed word. We're not reading newspapers trying to figure it out. We're not looking from election term to election term trying to figure out what God's redemptive plan is. We're looking at his word. And from there, we are gaining wisdom and discernment about the age around us and saying, "Okay, this is how God is working. And with great clarity, we can now stand forward and explain it and express it and believe it and apply it. So what I'm not saying is that. The word of God doesn't challenge us. And I'm not saying we shouldn't study. I'm saying we ought to study ferociously. But what I'm saying is all these endless rabbinical questions about the inner workings of his redemptive plan and then trying to find some nuance and loopholes around it, be it grammatically, be it historically, denominationally, however it is. None of that's born of faith. It's born of accusation. And it's pretending to be wisdom. Because simple faith exercises the kind of faith that trusts what he reveals, applies what he said, and is able to, with clarity, explain what he has accomplished. With clarity. And in that clarity, because we all have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, if we indeed belong to Christ. With that clarity, we all should sound very similar in what we're saying, if not the exact same. I recognize that in the Theological Academy, the Pseudo-Rabbinical Academy, that is no longer a virtue. That everyone has to bring some novel idea and novel thought about salvation or some other topic. But it is not so with the Christian because the exercise of faith accepts what is said and accepts what is said from God. It's why Job, several, uh, several, I would say thousands of years Uh, Before what Paul is writing. It's why Job can sound exactly like Paul. It's why Paul can appeal to Isaiah. It's why Paul can appeal to God's workings in Pharaoh and Moses. It's why all there's consistency. It's why when you read the Gospels, you go, wow, the things that Jesus said in raising up his his apostle Paul. Paul sounds a lot like Jesus. He's not Jesus, but he sounds like his master. Because that's what should happen. And the question is, the question that we'll look at mainly next time is, how are we formed? How are we formed? Because that is a greater evidence of the answer. I would say this, that 
The challenge in verses 20 and 21 also goes not only to righteousness and salvation, but their relationship to creation at the very beginning. It is why creation is very important. Because God's righteousness, his deliverance, his salvation is on display in creation. It's on display in creation. And so Paul answers the accusations and shows how God answers the accusations on the basis of creation. It's why we can't even have endless debates and questions about creation. We simply look at Genesis and say, this is what God said. I trust that God created this way. I believe it. I have faith in it, and I'm going to conduct myself accordingly. But look at this. Verse 20, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? We'll look at this more next time, but the thing molded, as Paul uses an analogy from pottery, does not have the ability to choose how it is molded. If you were to take clay and try to weave a vessel or a jar, the vessel in your hand would simply conform to your techniques and the shape that you give to it. The potter makes what he chooses. So the clay cannot say, why did you make me like this? The potter's choosing. But then it answers the question related to evil because not every piece of clay is fit for use. It is why Paul says in verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate it. Not every piece of clay is fit for use. Well, God, why? How come? How come you didn't do it this way? No, stop your mouth. God chose it that way. That's what God wants. That's how God has accomplished what he will. That's called divine election. Well, no, divine election is too hard on the people. They get frustrated. They get a little uncomfortable with that. Let's not teach that. Well, that's accusing God. That's saying that God in some area of his plan, that's off limits to man. When God is saying, no, all these things are on the table. They are clear before man. And they have been clear since the beginning. But how do we get to this point? How do we get to the point of understanding that God is crafting whom he will? And God is casting aside and leaving aside those whom he will judge. Well, next time we'll look at the passages that follow. And I believe that it will bless you to understand how God has elected from among his people, Israel, and also what he will do from the Gentiles and what he will do in the realm of mercy and of judgment. Let's pray.